Hello and welcome to the 101st episode of Crime Time FM. I know it's the 101st because we got a nice little meme from the publisher when we published the last one, so here we go. I'm Paul Burke and I write about crime fiction, and here I talk to writers about their crime novels. Today my guest is one of those men who seems to be able to turn his hand to anything. Charlie Higson will be known to a lot of you through The Fast Show and his many other comedy connections. But he's also a scriptwriter, you may remember Jekyll and Hyde, an actor, Grant Chester for instance, a producer, and of course a children's author, you'll remember the Enemy series and Silverfin, and the rest of the James Bond series. But we're here because Charlie has just written Whatever Gets You Through the Night, his first adult novel in 25 years. Why was the wait between the titles so long? Why now? as a time to come back and write an adult fiction. We'll certainly get to that. So let's chat about whatever gets you through the night with Charlie Higson. Hello and welcome to Crime Time FM, Charlie. Hello, yes. Well, it's lovely to be here, Paul. Great. How are you, sir? I'm pretty good. Yes, I've um, weathered all the recent storms, as it were. Physical, yeah, absolutely. Mental and um, viral. Um, and uh, and I started writing uh, the book in at the height of uh, the first lockdown in 2020. So. Right. I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit. But first, um, well, you're a man of many parts. Uh, today, we will mostly be talking about your new novel, Whatever Gets You Through the Night. Mm-hmm. Um, how early did you come up with the title? You know what you've done? You've put this John Lennon song in my head now and I can't get it out of it. <laughs> I know. It, um, I didn't know the song particularly well. Um, right. Uh, apparently it was, I think, possibly. Right, well, maybe we'll get into that a little bit. In the United States. Right. After the Beatles. Um, it's not as well known as some of his other songs. Um, it, I'm, I'm terrible with titles. I always come to them very late and... Yeah, normally I go through about 20 titles with my editors uh, and we eventually find one. Uh, this one went through about three or four. Right. And, uh, you know, it, it's a bit like writing a catchphrase for a comedy sketch. Um, for those people who don't know, as this is a crime podcast and not Indeed. a comedy podcast, I did spend many years making comedy shows, <laughs> particularly the fast show with Paul Whitehouse. And people always yeah. said to us, oh, what do you do? Do you sit down and make up some catchphrases and then put a character to them? But that's not how it works at all. When you're writing and you're writing a character piece, you'll find that certain lines come out and pop up that you think, yeah, that line sort of defines that character. Um, and you can use that. You can then build the character around that Um and, and, and yeah, it comes to you. And that's what happened with the book is that as I was writing it, there was a phrase that a couple of the characters kind of said and and, yeah. seemed, and it seemed to sort of sum up the underlying themes of the book was whatever gets you through the night. And, and it's I'm got quite that nice ironic that. tone to it as well. Yes, because I think there is there is an underlying hint of whatever gets you through the night, it's probably going to be something that's pretty bad for you. Mm. <laughs> but, but if it helps, <laughs> go for it. And it seemed very apt for, for a crime book. Um, and then, of course, I thought, well, that's, is that, isn't that, that the title of a song? And, of course, it was. It was a, the John Lennon song. Uh, and when I'm writing, whatever I'm writing, if it's a TV show or a film or a book, I will, I will put together a playlist on, on these days on Spotify 
right that acts as a sort of soundtrack for the book um and if i've got two or three different projects on i can put whatever playlist is uh corresponds to that project and i start the playlist and i'm instantly my head is in the right place um and so obviously my playlist for this book starts with the john lennon song and it um it does it did set me up very well for a good day's writing <laughs> i bet it did yeah yeah it's really interesting that you have that mood music can we backtrack a little bit and just talk about um i mean if you've always been a big reader and is that sort of across a wide range yeah um i've always loved reading lucky enough to grow up in the 1960s before there were all these distractions that modern kids have right yeah um, they're brilliant i love playing computer games and fiddling on my phone but i also love reading and, I, and i've had so much pleasure from reading in my life from when i was a kid onwards um in my teenage uh, well I, I really got into fantasy and sci-fi um when i was a teenager uh I, i've always loved genre fiction particularly loved historical fiction when i was a right. kid in the 60s 60s was a great time for kids historical fiction writers like mary reno and henry trees and jeffrey trees yeah right. um great books most of which have been largely forgotten but the, i i loved things that took me out of my own little world and off on an adventure and then i got as i say i got into sci-fi and and fantasy and then in my teenagers i was quite a sort of um snobby pseudo intellectual teenager and i i i i prided myself on reading very long difficult books <laughs> Thinking right. it put, put me above the common herd, uh, <laughs> so I was reading Kafka and the Dostoevsky. Yeah, I never never managed Dostoevsky, but um, yeah, um, Samuel Beckett and Moby oh, right. Dick and 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 Don Quixote and all all these big things, which I couldn't get through now. Um, and then I, when I was at university, I got into postmodern fiction this being the late 70s it was quite a big deal and the idea was kind of doing genre mashup type fiction which right um who, who wrote um the naked lunch oh, william burroughs as well william burroughs you know and, and and he sort of there were a lot of people that sort of got in on the on the sort of bandwagon what he was doing where he was taking bits of genre fiction and sort of mashing them up so there'd be mm. sort of pirate stories and cowboy stories and horror stories all mixed up into a sort of drug addled haze um and i started writing books like that in a sort of postmodern way um and then i found out actually that what i really loved doing was just writing the genre stuff and i thought why don't uh, let's get rid of all the arty stuff and get and 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 try and write a genre book and it coincided with a friend of mine at university um turned me on to to, to crime fiction i'd read all the obvious stuff um before uh Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler what I considered the posher end of the crime market um but then he turned me on to the more the more sort of pulp, pulpy stuff Jim Thompson and Elmore Leonard and, and right. George B. Higgins and and all that sort of classic wave of crime writers and I just just devoured it and I loved it yeah the American classics um great and stuff for dialogue yes I mean, particularly, I mean, I loved the early George V. Higgins mm. books like um, Rat on Fire, where he managed to write a thriller, which is sort of 99% dialogue. Yeah. There's virtually no other description. I mean, it, it, amazing stuff. In fact, when I was started writing Whatever Gets You Through the Night, I, I had an idea that I might 
try that, but um, it was too hard. <laughs> right. <laughs> but there is still a lot of dialogue in it, which I love, and that's what I love about Elmer Leonard. There is. I love, Sorry, yeah, I was going to say, I don't think we like exposition so much in modern fiction, do we? In modern crime fiction, we like to get to the heart of a character and dialogue is a great way to do that if you yeah. can do it. Yeah. And, you know, and I think if, you, if, you, if, you, if you're dealing with action and chasing and explosions and, and that, that's better left to the films mm. and TV or whatever. Um, but, what, but getting inside the head of a character um you know that that's what i love and you know Emil Len, elmo leonard books that sort of classic 80s there's not that much plot in the books and there's mm. not sort of clever plots and twists it's about just putting these funky characters together and and seeing what happens and 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 i love that as a as an approach to to fiction writing yeah just a, were you always clear then that you wanted to be a novelist? Because as you say, you know, going back to your university days, that was, you had a band at the time. And then of course this is pre the uh, comedy and the fast show. Yes. And yeah. And well, all the I other mean, things that have come since, of course. Well, I certainly never thought I would, I would work in TV or anything like that because I didn't know anyone who did that. It seemed to be right. an impossible dream. Whereas to write a book, you just need a biro and a, and an A4 pad which is the the height of technology that we had back in the 70s. I never learned to properly type on a typewriter. Um, so it was all, and, and, and I'd, since I was a kid, I'd been writing because I loved that. I loved the idea that you could just sit down with a pen and a piece of paper and you could make up something that wasn't there mm. before and create this whole world of characters and things happening and, and, and the dialogue and people talking to each other. And, and you could get emotionally involved with it just by making those sort of squiggly marks on a piece of yeah. paper. And it, that, to me, was a sort of magic. And through my teenage years, when I was supposed to be doing my homework, I would I would write these big, long fantasy books and make up um, alphabets for them and uh, special writing. And, of course, draw maps. You'd have, you have yeah, to have maps, maps. for fantasy. Uh, and I, I just loved doing that, and I loved it for my own entertainment. Um, and it wasn't until I'd finished about six complete novels that I, that I got one where... I thought, actually, you know, I've finally written a book someone else might want to read, um, which was my first proper crime book, which 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 I managed to get published in the early 90s, which was um, King of the Ants. Yes. Yeah. Right. Just to talk one question about the children's books before we go on hmm. from that. Is it from it's just come up from what you've said, actually, I think it's about the the love you said of the literature and that at the time, the shows on the telly that we had when you were growing up. Mm. Was it sort of an idea that you wanted to pass that on or create that for a new generation? Well, with the kids' books, you know, I my main impetus was that I had kids. I had three boys. Right, yeah, right. And, you know, they, they didn't really know much about the TV stuff. They were too young for that. And and as they as they got older, I thought it would be great to write something that they would like to read mm. in the hope that other kids might also like to read. And I was, because of the sort of boys they were and the sort of father I was, and um, we'd watched James Bond films together and, and, and loved sort of action type stuff. And they were always charging around with toy guns and things. And I was trying to think of an idea of, you know, what would be a really good, how to write a really good action story for kids. And I was approached completely out of the blue by uh, the Ian Fleming estate. Um, so it turned out that my editor from when I'd written the four, I'd, I wrote four crime books for adults in the early 90s. Yes, yeah. My editor from those days um, ended up working for the Fleming estate 
All right. And she knew my writing. She knew that I, I liked that sort of hard-boiled, unflowery, direct approach, which she felt would work well with kids. She knew I was a big James Bond fan. She knew I was, uh, uh, I had boys. And, you know, she said, would you be interested in writing a series of books about the young James Bond? And I thought about it for about half a second and <laughs> said, <laughs> of course I would. That would be the dream job. It was exactly what I'd been looking for. And it yeah, was, yeah. you know, even as she was mentioning it to me, I sort of had an idea that the first book sort of exploded into my mind right. fully formed. Uh, I just thought, yeah, I will just put everything in it that boys love, that I loved as a boy, that my boys love, and 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 do a sort of uh, yes, work out how to do a a child's version of 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 the world of James Bond. So yes. it, it was huge fun and uh, such an honour to be given the gig and and to spend a few years kind of working with the Fleming estate and Ian Fleming's family and being part of the world of of James Bond. So it, it was a, it was a dream job. Yeah. I bet it was. So why now then for an adult novel again? I mean, is that a bit of a silly question in the sense that uh, is it just the mood struck you or the children well, have grown up? One of the main reasons is is now that my kids, my boys are all grown up, they're all in their 20s. Right, yeah. Um, I didn't have that impetus to write for kids. Um, although I have, I am also working on a, a, a series for younger kids, a sort of a comedy series. Right. But, um, and I'd always, I'd never meant to stop writing for adults. I just hadn't had the time, or mainly I hadn't had the idea because I wrote those four books and then um, I remember desperately finishing the fourth of my crime books, um, Getting Rid of Mr. Kitchen, uh, just before my second son was going to be born. Mm-hmm. I thought, God, I've got to get this out of the way. I wrote it quite fast. Um and this was at the time when the fast show was taking off. So my life was very busy with, with children and with TV. And, um, you know, I, I just didn't have the headspace or the right. time to be thinking of writing books. And my editor, um, Richard Bezik, would get in touch with me every few weeks and said, you've got anything new, Charlie? And I'd say, well, I don't know, I'm working on it. And then it became sort of once a month and then once a year. Right. Uh, 25 years later, <laughs> I finally Here we said, are now. you know what, Richard, I think I've got an idea. I, you know, to, to write a book, you've got to have a really good, strong, central idea. Right. Um, and I, I mean, that's why also why I love writing crime fiction is you've got that engine of, of, a, of a crime story to push you through it. You're not just sort of abstractly wallowing in people's internal monologues. Yeah. Um, no and I had bits yeah. of ideas, but I didn't, I didn't have a fully formed idea of like, oh, yeah, I can see that. And I find that whatever I'm working on at the time, like you, you, your antenna, I get sort of attuned to that. So mm. when the fast show became the sort of central thing in my life during the rest of the 90s, um, I was attuned to thinking about characters and character comedy, funny characters, funny lines. So you kind of filter out everything else and your, your brain is constantly looking for an idea for a comedy sketch. Um, then when I was less busy doing the TV, the James Bond gig came along. And, and as I say, so for, for several years, I was thinking about stories for kids 
um, I did the James Bond books and then I did zombie books, the enemy series. Yes. Um, but I had these other ideas knocking around in the back of my mind and I always wanted to go back to crime fiction because the other thing was, yeah, I did, I wrote these four crime books in the early nineties before crime became the big thing. Yes. Right. Yeah. It yeah. was still a bit of a sort of slightly grubby. And look backwards. down on. Mm. And I wrote them out of my love of, of, of crime fiction, you know, the, they each of them are a homage or or stolen from <laughs> my favourite crime writers, which was either um, Patricia Highsmith, uh, Elmore Leonard, uh, Jim Thompson. Mainly writers, I, I love crime fiction, but I love crime fiction that's about criminals rather than crime fiction that's about policemen or detectives or the people solving the crimes. I'm interested in the people. Yeah doing the crimes and and so those were the the books that i loved uh, and you know i re- they were published by Hamish Hamilton and penguin at the time but they would not publish them as crime books i kept saying to them please these are crime books can we they said no 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 they're better than that you know we want to make them look arty and clever and you know you're part of the new wave of young male writers i said no these are crime books please <laughs> uh and they wouldn't do it until uh, i moved to um uh, Little Brown, Abacus, and my new agent, Richard, who I was talking about before. And he said, yeah, no, great. These are crime books. Published them as crime books. And it was just at the time when crime was starting to take over. I yeah. remember I was doing one of the earliest literary events I ever did for my first book, um, uh, King of the Ants. I did it with Peter James. Oh, yeah, right. Because my book was, it, they sort of pushed it into a slight, almost like a sort of, horror kind of thing which which was having a bit of a bit of a heyday at the time and i did an event and and peter james was still writing horror but pretty much as soon as i stopped writing adult my crime fiction peter james saw the way the wind was blowing and switched to writing crime books and become huge huge bestseller and i sort of missed out on that at the time and i always felt a bit uh, a bit pissed off <laughs> That I had missed out, and I thought if I'd stuck at it, I could, I could be like Ian Rankin now. <laughs> uh, well, in Simon fairness, Simon. it worked out in other ways, didn't it? Yes, exactly. I was doing other things, um, <laughs> but you know, I do love writing, and I do love crime books, and you know, uh, so so the time just felt right. Finally, after twenty five years, um, as we're saying, we were in lockdown. Um, the first half of that 2020 didn't really manage to do anything significant, did bits and pieces, hard right. to concentrate. I think a lot of people found it. Yeah. I think a lot of writers found it hard because, yeah. you know, if you're writing contemporary fiction, you want to write about the world as it is today. And nobody really knew what the consequences of COVID yeah. were. How long was it going to last? Because if you're writing a book, you, you know, Certainly, when you start, you're looking at this. Might this is probably going to be published two years time, maybe That's even right. more. Mm. What will the world be like then? Do I have to set my book pre-COVID, or is it during COVID now? Or you know, I, I, I want it to feel relevant when it comes out. Will people still be wearing masks? Will we be socially distanced? Will COVID be a thing? Do I put it in? Do I not put it in? I think it was very difficult for, for, for writers to, to to know how to to deal with that. Yeah, it's a very good point. Um, but as this, as the year went on and I started to get bored and twitchy, 
the the elements of this of my new book sort of fell into place and i thought well now is the time to do it uh and in fact it was it, it was partly from reading some other thrillers at the time that they gave me a, a sort of unlocked a way to deal because i had all these diff, sort of disparate bits and pieces floating around and lots of different characters and i wasn't quite sure how to pull them all together um and I read one of Joe. In that Ives. case, is the only way to sort of get on with it, then, if you like. Well, it was, but I just right. did, I did need that one key of right. How does it work? Even if, and sometimes when you get that idea, you get a sort of picture of your book in your head. Think, okay, I know what it is. I know how this right. is going to end up, or where I'm working towards. Sometimes it ends up something completely different, but I think you've got to have that that goal in mind before you start. And, and I was reading, I read a, a, one of Joe Ide's QI books. Um, right, yeah. And he had lots of disparate characters and lots of plots going on. And he started to play all the different plots off against each other so that his detective QI was, was kind of using all these different characters against each other. And it really reminded me of what Dashiell Hammett did in um, Red Harvest. Mm-hmm where the Continental Op turns up in this really corrupt town where there's bootleggers and gamblers and corrupt cops and corrupt politicians. And he, and he plays him. all the different mm-hmm. factions off against each other. It's a great, great fun book. I, I went back and reread it straight away. Went, uh, and I thought, yes, that's what, I, that's what I'll do in my book. All these disparate elements, and they'll all come together in a big climax and, and play off against each other. And that gave me enough to get, to get going. So what then about becoming the pantograder for your own world? <laughs> you know? Yes. Uh, yes, I think, yes, pantograder is this, the, the image of, of Christ with the arms outstretched, sort of, I am the Lord of everything. Yes. Um, the omnipresent. Yes. And, well, I mean, of course, that's why writers become <laughs> writers. You have complete control of, of everything in, in your books. And you know, much more so than than TV or, or film, where you know you've got all these other factors that come in of budget and time and casting and uh, you know the, the yeah executives having an input. Um, you make the best of it, but in a book, you are you know obviously you you accept help and advice from people, and uh, if you're lucky, you get a really good editor to work with. Um, but yes, you are, you are essentially in charge of, of absolutely everything. And, um, yes. And, you know, for a control freak like me, sorry, like for a control freak like me, that's, that's heaven. (laughs) Literally. (laughs) I was wondering, is there a sense of mischief in there as well? What I was thinking was sort of the way you take, for instance, we're talking about an island, an idyllic island a holiday island, whereas you turn it into hell, really, in a sense. Do you, you sort of enjoy that kind of thing? Well, it's not complete hell. No, it's not. <laughs> I do, yeah. What I like to do is is to create some interesting characters and kind of put them in a Tupperware box and shake it up. Right. And, and see what see what how they react and how they smash against each other um that's what i that's what i love doing and, and that's what happens in my favorite books and well, prob- yeah go ahead well sorry i keep interrupting you don't i um 
I think it's it's probably a good time to tell people a little bit about whatever gets you through the night. Yeah, well, it's uh, it is it's set on Corfu, as we touched on, yeah. um, which is an island I've visited a lot, um, and we used to go there for family holidays a lot. Right. Um, and, and while I was going there when the boys were younger, a lot of the ideas that ended up in the book sort of came to my head. Instance that happened, uh, which fed into it. Uh, which may maybe come back to because I'm supposed to be telling you what the book's about. Um, <laughs> so um, the idea is that there is this um, young, good-looking, successful um, tech entrepreneur who, very wealthy, or at least appears to be very wealthy, has his compound on the island, mm-hmm. and he has his own tennis team that he's ostensibly training, um, who are all young girls. Um, and it is quite clear that he is abusing his position and he's abusing them um, in a sort of cult-like way. Um, and the father of one of these girls hires a fixer called McIntyre to, to, to go and try and get his girl out from the clutches of um, the entrepreneur. So McIntyre turns up on the island and he ha- has a small... A slightly eccentric team with him, and the idea is that they they set up this 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 plan to to get the girl out with a minimum of fuss. Is the idea is that he you know he he's not going to go in there all guns blazing. Um, it's more quiet and undercover and not making a fuss, um, which was in some ways a reaction to some of the books I was reading at the time. Um, I wondered about that because it's very unusual for a British book. This fixer, but he's not Jack Reacher, and of course he's not James Bond. I wanted him to be the complete opposite. Uh, right. and, and, and it was particularly uh, my brother in Australia said, oh, you've got to read the Orphan X books uh, by Greg right. Hervitz. He said, they're great. And they are. They're very entertaining, but completely ridiculous. Yes. Um, so over the top. And, and, you know, for a great over the top action book, brilliant. And, you know, it's the idea, the, the oft, oft used idea that uh, kids are, you know, disadvantaged kids and orphans are, are taken off the streets mm. and trained to be deadly assassins. Um, and he's left the organization and gone solo and gone a bit rogue. Uh, and, you know, it's all about the massive firepower that he has and, and all this kind of stuff, which um, is great fun, but completely implausible. Yes. It's not I, wanted to, I wanted to do a character who was more like me. <laughs> Who didn't charge around shooting people and beating people up because he would see, consider that to be a failure because he's yeah. trying to be discreet. And I wanted to make him, he doesn't have an amazing, interesting, dark backstory. He's just an ordinary bloke who ended up doing this stuff. And and I, I, I liked that idea. I wanted to get away from these hugely complex guys with dark backgrounds who are uh, fighting all these demons. He's just a guy just trying to do good in the world. And he has these guys around him who who have similar similar aims. So I'd, I'd, it was quite fun to, ha- to to play with that. And you know, I, there are two to a classic male hero types. You've got the 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 knight and the wizard. Right. Knight is your sort of James Bond, Jack Reacher type, the action, shooting, punching, kicking killing monsters and the wizard is more like um sherlock holmes or doctor who it's it's more using the mind and using uh 
planning and and skills. Although interesting, interestingly, Jack Reacher is a sort of mix of the two. He is um, there's a lot of his sort of Sherlock Holmes style deductions. Yes, and, yes, but then he will still have to kick the shit out of someone. Yeah. I mean that's the point. You wouldn't sell one Jack Reacher book if you took the action out. Despite no. the fact, I see what you're saying about that. There exactly. is that side to him, that deductive reasoning. Yes, that exactly. Thing. And you know, I I I love the Jack Reacher books, particularly the early ones. But I wanted to do a, a counterpoint to that and see if that could still be fun and interesting, and that we'd still root for the character. Um, and I hope I hope people do. I think so, but it works with the fact that you've got these other characters around them. I want to talk about that a little bit later, mm-hmm. but I'd just like to start with the theme, if we could. There are a few themes in the book, actually. There's a lot going on at any one time. One thing that struck me about this was, of course, this is about a powerful abuser, and this is in particular case we're talking about a paedophile. Um, I just wondered, and it's very much in the news, you know, it's a very zeitgeisty issue. Is that the inspiration for the novel? Is that the thing that sort of set you going? Well, that was one of the things because, you know, you've got to think of um, a villain and, and a setup. Uh, and, and yes, it did. When I was putting the book together, it did coincide with a lot of stuff about um, Jeffrey Epstein. And um, I got really interested, if that's the right word, in the character of Jelaine Maxwell. Yeah, right. Um you know what? And in fact, I got the, the, the whole idea of all the people around Jeffrey Epstein who were enabling mm. him, who they must have known what was going on, whether they were involved with it or not. And that's what I was interested in that world around someone like that and what she was doing. Was she recruiting girls to, to, to pleasure him in order to maintain her own status within mm-hmm. his network? I, I just think that's, that's a really interesting power dynamic. Um, and it's fascinating and it's and it's grotesque and 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 that was the inspiration for one of the uh the girls in the book mm-hmm. who i mean she's she's nothing like Jelaine Maxwell but she is a she's a slightly older young woman who, who is basically helping uh Julian Hepworth the, the the main guy to carry on doing what he's doing and she's constantly questioning what her position is and why she's doing what she's doing and what it's all for. And, you know, I, 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 I wanted to in, explore that area, but hopefully not in a sort of exploitational way. No, not at all. But I do wonder, were there any qualms about that? Because obviously one of the things about your book is it is this propulsive novel. You know, it, it is about um, the page turning thriller as well. So I totally had uh, totally had qualms about that, and you know, I, I was con- you know, whenever you have a book out, you're concerned with how people are going to react to it. But I, yeah. I, I wasn't sure how people were going to react to it. I mean, what I did make sure in the book was was to to give the um, the main young girl who McIntyre has gone there to, to free to give to make her a prominent character in the book. Yes, and and she is also planning her own escape. So she, it's not like she's just sitting around waiting for some older, older bloke to turn up and no. save her. She's very, no, it's proactive. not a savior story. Yes, exactly. I didn't, I didn't want it. To be that. And I, and, and I, um, you know, I wanted her to be, to be powerful and growing in power through the book and, and to explore her situation properly and make her a proper character. Um, and, 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 you know, that, that again, it's one of the other strands that, 
that all sort of come together and smash smash up against each other at the end. Yeah. There's something about um, humour as well in the book. I'm just curious if it's different for you. I get the feeling sometimes that authors try to put a bit of humour in in some way to balance, or perhaps you put a humour in in order to get a nasty kick afterwards. You know, it, it increases the effect. I assume for you it's a slightly different thing. I mean, how naturally does it come in a sense? And then how careful do you have to be in a book like this that it's in the right yeah. place, it's the right kind of humour? Does that make sense? I mean, my feeling about humour is that it's a huge part of everybody's life. Yes. Um, even if you're in a terrible situation, there will be humour. You will laugh about things. And for me, things get very unrealistic if, if nobody is being funny or laughing about things or, or, or saying funny things. It, it, is a sort, it is our sort of default mode in many ways. And it's a way of coping. Yeah, for, for for a lot of people, um, and the the crime writers that I love, there there is a lot of humour. You know, Elmo Leonard, they're very funny. A lot of his, you know, his villains are yeah, funny. They are. The way they yeah. the way they talk, the the way they interact. Um, Jim Thompson, extremely dark humour, and 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 that the humour becomes a sort of counterpoint it makes the it makes the nasty stuff that much more nasty i mean the mm. killer inside me the guy the sheriff has has developed this persona of being this sort of bore who makes corny jokes the whole time yeah and he does it he's a sadist and he does that as a form of yeah. sadism because he knows as the sheriff in the town people have got to stand and listen to him and he's kind of doing these awful jokes and grinding them down and they're having to humor him and all the time, you know something nasty is coming. Yeah, you know he's a, he's a horrific character. Um, so I've always liked that approach. Um, and the other thing is, you know, when you're doing comedy, it often helps to counterpoint that with with something dark or something right, yes, yes, sad or whatever that can increase the comedy and make it you know that much more powerful. So you know, on the fast show show, we would often mix comedy and 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 drama and and as i say i think it's it's true to life and yeah there is there is a lot of humor in the book in the, including you know from some of the nasty psychopaths in it um there's, there's a lot i mean it sounds i don't want to tell people about this they've got to read the book for themselves but when you talk about the character ray there's a lot yes. in ray's character that that you know is is funny as well yes he's a, he's a, he's he's, he's the villain's bodyguard, and he's obsessed with psychopaths. He reads all these books about psychopaths, and he really wants to be a psychopath because he thinks that's sort of ultimate human achievement, and yeah. he can't quite manage it. <laughs> <laughs> but it is his obsession. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, I've always loved exploring twisted criminal minds in my books and because I'm interested in what makes these people tick and what makes these people do what they do and yeah i think it's okay to 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 laugh occasionally with ray but mostly at him at him uh, yes <laughs> no i think that's perfectly fine i'm sure you're absolutely right i want to talk about character then because there's there is a big cast in this book of important mm. characters you mentioned that it's not just mcintyre mcintyre's got a team there's all sorts of things going on all sorts of characters i was thinking back to something i think you said about paul whitehouse and how he could sort of get a voice 
and get an essence of a person just from observation and he'd have it sort of just like that. How do you develop character? Yeah, it, it was interesting. I was, I, was, I was thinking about this this morning, um, about the different approach to comedy that Paul and mm. I had in that he took a very sort of direct emotional response, not sort of filtered through anything other than, oh, that's funny, or that's an interesting character. And as you say, he, 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 he could meet someone, maybe someone I'd known for years, and then he could meet them and impersonate them, and you'd suddenly realise things about that character and who they were and how they were that you hadn't noticed before, mm. but he'd gone straight to that. Um, and I always take a much more intellectual approach to things. And, in fact, maybe you can help me here because I was trying to think of... What? How you would describe if I if I was described as an intellectual because I'm approaching things through thinking about them mm -hmm. through logic and reasoning and um, analytical approach. What do you call someone who doesn't take that approach but takes just a much more direct emotional approach? Anti-intellectual is not right because Paul's not an anti-intellectual. But no. is there a word? Is there a word for that? Huh. On the <laughs> on the spot now then because i'm trying to write a piece is the most some some kind of instinctive, intellectual instinctive intellectual yeah, instinctive instinctivism i'm going to write that down thank you <laughs> <laughs> well, i think that's that's the most obvious thing uh, that i think comes to me because it, yes. it obviously isn't a process that he could be thinking about in any great depth you know yeah but obviously he is in the back of his mind it's obviously happening yeah, I mean, once once you've taken that idea and you're working on it together, you, obviously you bring a lot more to it. But that would be the way it would work. He would have an instinctive approach, <laughs> which I would then in intellectualize. I would say, okay, well, what's the point of this? How do we make a story out of it? How do we put meaning into it? How do we structure an actual sketch out of it? Um, and that was 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 the directions that we were both coming from, and we we met in the middle, which which you need for a, a comedy any writing partnership, yeah, particularly right. a comedy writing partnership, that you're not both doing the same thing. Mm. Um, you're both coming from a from a different angle. Um, so so my approach to characters was always an idea. So it was, for instance, with the with the with the painter, it was what if a Sunday afternoon. Um, pretty uh, watercolorist who liked to paint boats and cats and uh, nice views had the soul of a, of a tortured artist like Van Gogh. Yes. And, and, and that was my starting point. And other things came in and the, the characters mm. slightly changed. Um, Paul's approach to creating a character like that would have been, Oh, I've just seen this, um, this DVD this how to paint DVD with this guy. He's so funny. Let's do something with that. So it was, um, yeah, mine would always so come. Do you wind me. up with a richer character that way? Oh, certainly. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, left to our own devices, the characters would have only been half what they were. Right. So, you know, it would always be, well, well, friends, this is a very intellectual approach to write a sketch. One of our jazz club, characters was the jazz club with the guy yes, who's yeah. very yeah, yeah. pretentious yeah. about jazz. So uh, Paul comes in one day and says, because uh, we, we've so done as many permutations as we can think of. And he said, what about we do silent jazz where they don't actually play anything? Right. Uh, and he just thought that was a gag. And I thought, yeah, you know what? You know what? What about if they played the famous John Cage piece? 
Yeah. Right. Is, and I always get it wrong. Was it four minutes? 30, four minutes 57 or? Or 32. Anyway, 30, whatever. Seven, it's yeah. a, four minutes something, which is complete silence, silence, where the orchestra on stage don't play anything for that set amount of time. Yeah. But, of course, all these other sounds are going on and you're aware of the sounds in the auditorium and the creaks and the plonk, plinks and plonks of people moving around. Mm. Um, so I brought that intellectual angle to it. I thought it would be very funny to do a jazz version of a piece that is completely silent. Uh, and then you get the other layer of, of comedy coming in of, of let's have some ridiculous-looking jazz musicians yes and have them making ridiculous jazz expressions whilst they're standing there making absolutely no noise so you know that's the way that the, the ideas always used to come together with us of, yeah. of of us knocking against each other with coming from a different angle and thinking how you can top what they've done and add to it and and, and make it give it a give it a structure that really explains it yeah it's a fascinating insight Going back to the novel, talking specifically about um, the two characters, Julian and Pixie, um, you're right. I mean, first thing people are going to assume is they're going to assume Epstein and they're going to assume Ghislaine Maxwell as well, which is another interesting aspect of it, the fact that you did consider her character. But it wouldn't have worked if you tried to transfer their characters to the page. You still had to create two individuals who were very much... Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, it, 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 that was that was an inspiration. That was a starting yeah. point of yeah. a character like that. But I didn't want to write his story at all. Um, and it needed to be in my own setup of. And, it, and as I say, that really what I took from it was that dynamic of. Of her and what, you know, throwing her into the mix. So it's not just here's this here's this evil monster, but he's got a whole world and he he, he doesn't see what he's doing as being wrong in any way. Um, he's totally sort of self-justifying, as as most criminals are. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it is, as you pointed out, very interesting to discover the people around him, the staff, the hangers-on, the ones who get inveigled into it all. You know, what are their motivations? Mm. And know, the people who turn up at his big, yeah, his big yeah. parties, um, how much do they know? Do they care? Are they just there for to have a party you know it's it's it, it, it's and you know and and the book is about those sort of power structures everybody's sort of jostling for position and wanting mm. to, to have power over other people through whatever means was there a lot of research and by that i think i'm referring to the psychology of the characters because you had to deal with the, the grooming side the abuse side the narcissism of one character on the other hand you've got the resistance and the victims on the other side and as you point out, one of the girls, Lauren, I mean, she is really quite a character. Because these are complex issues and really complex people, too. Yeah, I mean, well, research, it's, you know, to a certain extent as a writer, you're, you're just, you are a sponge. You're constantly soaking things up, mm -hmm. reading things, reading newspapers, magazines, watching TV shows, looking at stuff online. And the stuff kind of gets in there. Um, but ultimately it's a, it's a process of putting yourself in that person's position. Right. Right. Um, no matter how unpleasant that person might be, you kind of think, well, what? Because, you know, villainous people, nasty people, it's like the, <laughs> the Mitchell and Webb sketch. 
with the two SS officers saying, you know, are we the bad guys? <laughs> uh, yeah. We got skulls on our caps uh, because nobody ever does think that they are the bad. No, guys. they don't, of course. Yeah. Um, and and a lot of that happens in the book is 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 people justifying what they do. Well, you've got to understand that was the only thing I could do. Mm. Um, that was the logical and sensible thing to do, and 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 that's you know that's a great way to get inside a, a, a twisted criminal mind, particularly a, a psychopathic mind, because it was interesting because there's two characters. You've got the bodyguard who really wants to be a psychopath, and then you've got the guy that he's looking after, yes. who actually is a psychopath. He doesn't have any empathy at all for people. He just uses them for his own ends. Um, but you know, you show those two people. To, to other people and they say well the bodyguard he's a psychopath it must be you know he's a big knucklehead with a gun um and that guy's just the rich guy in a suit no and you so made a nice play with the Chekhov thing about the gun at the start of the novel which <laughs> yes yeah. i thought that was very nice and lauren's a great <laughs> I, I had to put that in because because the gun doesn't get used <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah flipping the tropes um, yeah, no, it was it was a very interesting factor though. And as I was saying, I think um, Lauren also was a fantastic character. I think that was a crucial part of the book because, as you say, it, it's not a savior story because this girl has her own agency, as they now say, agency. But uh, agency, yes. such a strong character in her own right. It's brilliant, and yeah, she's no, one I, of the girls. I, I as I said before, that was really really important to me mm. to give her a voice and a, and a character and to show what she's been through. And show her trying to deal with it and come out strong the other side, um, and 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 yeah, it's it's a big cast of characters, and we kind of get inside all of their heads, and and they all come together at this giant party at the end where all the different plots and the characters and the strands yeah. uh, sort of smash into each other. Talking about that, you said you had these ideas in your head for quite a long time. Was that these different strands? Was it all sort of pulling that together? Yeah, and they weren't. Yeah. You know, they were they were different. You know the the character of the father mm. um was a character in a book that i'd started and, and didn't get very far with right um but i'd always really liked the character he's a bit of a sad act he's fallen apart since his since his daughter has got involved yes. in this cult for want of a better word um and you know i wanted to show the impact on families of of, of these things happening um and him questioning who he is and he's own masculinity and you know it's uh, so 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 yeah so i had him from another book i had bits and pieces of other stories i knew i wanted to write something set on corfu and there were all sorts of it i mean one of the things the inspirations for the book which is something i wanted to do something with for, for a long time was was on one of the times we were out there we 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 had a Took, chartered a boat and they took us down the Straits of Corfu and they mm. pointed out um, the Rothschild estate. There's a huge, oh, yeah. uh, huge estate that the, 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 the northeast of Corfu has got all these wealthy people who have houses there. And the Rothschild estate was, was pretty impressive. And the thing that really stuck in my mind was um, it pointed across the other side of the Straits to Albania because Corfu is very close to Albania. Yeah. And most of the coast of Albania is quite barren and yeah, rocky and dry, but there was this one quite long stretch, which was densely wooded and all green and and lush and and, and well looked after. Um, and the guy on the boat said, "The reason for that is that piece of land belongs to the Rothschilds, 
they bought it so that they wouldn't be overlooked. Right. <laughs> well, and that they'd have a nice view. And, you know, for me, that said so much about wealth and what Indeed. it do for you. Um, and I always wanted to write. So, so the, the estate that Hepworth has in the book is kind of inspired by the Rothschilds estate. Um, so all these, I had all these bits and pieces. I had an idea of of someone. In my original idea, it was an agent of some sort, like a you know British government agent mm-hmm. who's been sent to Corfu to to um, do something, find something out, deal with somebody out there. And I had the idea of a family there on a holiday, and he has to infiltrate the family. Yeah. Um, and it was all a bit amoral. It was sort of getting into those realms of. Uh, what's come out quite a lot recently of those undercover police guys who have struck right. up relationships with people. Yeah. Um, in order Targeting to, all to the wrong people anyway. Yeah. yeah. So, so I had that idea and then I thought actually in this, this day and age, people don't, people don't really want to have these guys as the hero of the book. So I changed the idea that, but, but there were all these bits and pieces and it was the two things of, of the, of the idea of the Epstein, thing mm-hmm. um and the red harvest idea of someone turning up and thinking okay i can use that person against that person and i'll play that person off against that and that'll get me what i need <clears throat> so he was still a, he's still a manipulative character but he's doing it for the for the right reasons yeah absolutely there was one other thing in the book um i mean we talked about the albanian gangsters and greek drug trades and so on <laughs> but there was this thing about um the flat earth and that really struck me. I, I'm just wondering for, for a couple of, it sort of reflects on the Epstein story, doesn't it? In a, in a bigger way or sorry, Julian's story. Yes. Because it goes to the gullibility of people. But I mean, is that also an issue that just bothers you generally? Because we do seem to be finding out how much people will just take. I know. It, 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 I am fascinated with conspiracy theories and, 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 and yet there's a central thing in that um, Julian, the villain encourages all these Mm. conspiracy theories because conspiracy theories just obscure yeah. the actual truth the actual bold truth which is there in front of us that capitalism is not a great thing and that there are these wealthy powerful capitalists and such as donald trump and they are they are screwing you yes but it's much people much prefer that there's some weird conspiracy going on, on underneath with the illuminati and and um yeah <laughs> Uh, and whatever and also it, it feeds into uh well it feeds into two things one one in the is that actually people feel comforted by conspiracy theories mm. because it, it it means the world isn't random it means that everything that happened is being controlled by someone then yes. whoever they are so princess diana didn't die in a stupid car accident it was all set up by yeah. the royal family working in conjunction with this. And they had the secret know, service. It was, it was, so there was a reason for it and it was planned. And so we actually were in safe hands um, because they are controlling us and looking after us. And even though we might think, oh, they are bad, but actually oh, they're, they're, they're in charge of things. And that goes back to, to it's, a, it's a religious belief. That's why people believe mm. in God. They like the idea that there is Pantocrator up there I suppose, yeah, the point is you can always refer upstairs. There's a purpose to our life. And I I, I think that's the other thing that drives people towards conspiracy theories is it gives them a purpose. 
and a meaning. And, you know, and particularly if you have lost a lot of them, if you, if you really dig deep, it does come back to a religious, uh, a religious thing of it is about Satan mm-hmm. versus God. Um, but also it's, it, it, it's a way for, for people who are, who are generally doing nasty things, which are there for, for us all to see, to obscure that and to get people distracted chasing yeah that's the thing that bothers me a lot and and you know i I started away yeah so i i you know and i and i started looking into it and i started on twitter i i because there's been this huge rise recently in in people who are obsessed with that we live on a flat earth Mm. um which is so patently ridiculous that that's the thing it's the truly ridiculous nature of mm. it that just comes and it's but, that, because then you start to wonder how do you engage you know if somebody's got a different political opinion or a different opinion to you but it's rational you can argue how the hell do you argue with something that's completely you 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 can't and and uh, because i tried on twitter <laughs> <laughs> and i spent a lot of time talking to these people um not getting very far because in the end, it did come down to, you know, in the same way that you can't argue with someone who believes in God. It mm. is a belief. Yeah. They don't need no, it's proof. Mm. It, is, it is just what they believe in. And, and therefore, you can't, you can't rationally argue it through. Um, and you see often that these people, as I say, they need, you know, they were, they, their lives were empty or something had happened to them. They'd had emotional upset or something. And, yet, and then they would go online and they find these like-minded people who they can join in as a, as a group and it, and it gives meaning and purpose and it you feel i know something that other people don't know uh, yeah. it makes me special and you know I, I i do think it's it's fascinating um but i also do think that it is uh, heavily promoted by people of maybe that's my own conspiracy theory <laughs> but the thing with the capitalism capitalism is there it's in front of you yes you don't need to dig any deeper you can see what they're doing. Oh yeah, it's it's not ashamed of itself. No, <laughs> they're not ashamed of themselves. No, <laughs> let's lighten it up a little bit. Couple of questions to finish off. One is about the the book cover. I just wonder if you're involved in that because I've noticed that they did your other adult books. They've given those similar covers now, haven't they? Yeah, and they yeah, look no, they look um, very good. They're they're not quite they're not standard crime covers. Well, I, I I I love the cover of whatever gets you through the night. Mm. You know, you get sent covers. Um from publishers and you know it'll be an attachment so you can't see it till you've opened it and there's always it's always quite tense mm. it's quite fearful um even though it can be changed but often they're sent to you like here's the design for the new cover we really hope you like it because we've got to go to print tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no it's never been quite that bad but it sometimes can be but you you open it with a certain sense of 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 trepidation thinking you know god what's it going to be is it going to be awful but but as soon as i saw the 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 rough design which is pretty close to the finished design for the book it just i think it's very striking the the red the yellow and the the combination of all the different elements in the in the the image in the center of the book which which does what the book does it pushes all these things together um uh and i just said yes this is brilliant i love it and, and AAS, as you say, they've repackaged the other. Yeah, and I think they look very good too. What's mm. next then? Uh, well, um, I have started writing another kid's book. 
it's a sequel to my last kid's book, which was called Worst Holiday Ever. So it's about yeah. a shy boy called Stan. Um, if uh, whatever gets you through the night is successful and people like it, then I would love to write the further adventures of um, Macintyre going somewhere right, else, right? Okay, abroad and freeing someone else. Um, so that's in the hands of the of the general public. <laughs> <laughs> Buy this book if you want more. Yes. Yes. So, uh, yeah, the, on on the on the literary side, on the book side, those that's what I've got um, on the go. And one last question: um, a recommendation? Well, I mean, it's not much of a recommendation because she's extremely famous. I since Mo Hader died, ah, I right. um, as I read, I hadn't read any of her books before. Um, I just thought it was another sort of. Well, you know, I just thought, oh, it's another one of these police things, which I'm never going to keep up with. There's too many of them out there. Um, but I thought she sounded such a fascinating character. So I didn't really know anything about her, to my shame. Uh, and she she had such an interesting life, you know, mm, being, being the starting out doing the, the sort of busty secretary on um, Are You Being Served and things like that. And then being a hostess in Japan and then coming to write the books and the books are so well written, you know, Mm. very well researched, but not in a sort of nerdy look at my research way. Um, It was tragic. And I, you know, when she died, I thought I've got to read one of these books. And and actually I asked Mark Billingham, who's a friend of mine. I said, yeah, I'm interested in which one should I start with? And he suggested um, uh, it was uh, Tokyo. It was originally called Beast. Of, yeah, Tokyo is when I remember Beast of Nankin or whatever. Yeah. Um, he said, "We'll start with that one because it's not part of a series; it's a standalone." And and I was really uh, really knocked out by it. So I and I'm now reading um, Birdland, which is the Birdman, which is the first of her ongoing police series. The police um, procedurals, yeah. And yeah, I just you know it's great when you find someone. New, as I say, your listeners will have read all these books. Well, already. no, you, you'd be surprised. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's always there's always new authors out there. I mean, we've mentioned mm. a few today. You know, there'll be a couple of people who won't know Jim Thompson. I would thoroughly mm. recommend that people get into that and correct that if that's uh, if that's yes. a gap in their reading for sure. Certainly. Well, you know, uh, if you want to start, Jim, I would recommend Pop Pop Twelve Eighty is is is, right. is is a great one to start with. Um, killer inside me. If you've got a strong stomach, yeah, <laughs> build up to that perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> Charlie, that's been great. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Always lovely to talk about myself <laughs> and my and my great work. <laughs> Thank you, Charlie. Thank you to Charlie Higson for a really fascinating and entertaining chat. Whatever gets you through the night should be a big hit with readers because it's a cracker. And I, for one, want to see McIntyre return in a sequel, so go and buy the book. Whatever gets you through the night is available now in hardback from Little Brown. And you can purchase it from bookchop.org through the link on our program page. I'll be back with another interview shortly. Probably historical writer Robert J. Lloyd or American author William Boyle. But for now, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.